Hi, Sarah Heffala. Hi, Nancy Rommelman. <laughs> hey, is it my imagination or are you topless right now? I, well, you, you're not supposed to tell the listeners that. Um, yeah, actually, it is your imagination. It but is you my know, imagination. I was trying to create controversy what, around what, you. That's what people tend to do with me when they hear my voice. They're like, oh, this is that sexy, squeaky little voice. I wonder if she's wearing a shirt. So, uh, yeah, but did you, I do have some nice new hair. Hopefully uh, you are noticing. That was the first thing I noticed before I noticed that you were topless in my yeah. imagination. Yeah. So you had uh, pink bangs. I would call this a sort of magenta hot pink. Uh, Like a hot hot pink. Corally with some pink. It's got a couple different things in there. I don't know. Anyway, she does it. I don't do it. I I can't do it myself because it's like a two-step process. You might be turning into an anime character. Have you considered this? Uh, Well, I've got a pretty good Bitmoji, actually. You know, if people don't know how to make their own Bitmoji, I'm sure they do because since I'm the oldest person on planet Earth, um, everybody else knows these things already. But anyway, I created my own Bitmoji a couple years ago. People are like, dang, that looks exactly like you. So, uh, And she does kind of look like like this. So I don't know if I'm starting to look like her or she's starting to look like me. I don't know. So, hi. Hi. It's Monday morning and we haven't been in the studio for a while because both of us have been on the road. Uh, I'm, I'm just back in New York City. You are back in Dallas for a few days now. Um, I'm doing? so tired. I am so exhausted that I fell asleep watching a Fatty Arbuckle documentary at <laughs> eight o'clock last night. But I think that might be the right response. No, it was fascinating. Oh. It was genuinely fascinating because it is the sort of, as we talked about last week, it's the first big Hollywood scandal of the Hollywood golden age. <laughs> and I had it all wrong. Well, this is interesting, and we'll get into that in a second, how these stories are told wrong. They were told wrong then, and they're told wrong now. Imagine that, that human nature doesn't change, Sarah Heppler. Um, But it was funny because I had mentioned that I had heard of Fatty Arbuckle when I was a kid, not knowing why. And one of our lovely um, listeners wrote in and said, well, it might have been that book, Hollywood Babylon, which is a really cool yes. book. And by the way, guys, um, as you know, who, those who have been here before and those who haven't been welcome, um, we do some pretty extensive show notes. So almost anything we're talking about, you can um, you can go and, and look up uh, links for, which will be in the show notes, including Hollywood Babylon, which is a pretty good um old Hollywood book. I think it probably came out like in the mid seventies, but I got to tell you, I think I heard about Fatty Arbuckle even before then. Like it was just in the miasma that there was this shame of this, you know, fat, I think Fatty Arbuckle was even in, were were they talkies at that point or like silent films? He's a a silent film star. He was a mentor to Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. Okay, so and Buster Keaton is, they're they're both amazing. But um, I had heard This is what I heard that there was, and you're going to tell us what actually happened. This is what I heard as a child. Why I would have heard this as a child, who would have told me? I don't know. Um, Fatty Arbuckle was at a party. There were more than one people. There was a starlet, in quotes there, and and he uh, penetrated her with a Coca-Cola bottle, which broke inside her and she hemorrhaged and died. So this is the my child's brain, like nine years old. This is just a scary, scary story. Not even having so much to do with like women in rape or anything, just this like horrible, frightening scene. So Sarah Heplo, what actually happened in this story? 
Well, first, I want to tell you that I heard this story in high school drama because my drama teacher told it to us. But I think she kind of told it to us like there was this scandal and it involved a rape and I'm not going to tell you anything more. And so we were all like, now we're going to go find out everything that happened. And so I, in my memory, I've conflated this story with like, like I really literally did remember this story as Fatty Arbuckle raped this young woman and his girth was so big that he ruptured her internal organs, which I know is one of the urban legends that came out of this story. And that is honestly how I remembered this story. Okay, let me just back up and tell you real quickly, Fatty Arbuckle is a is a man named Roscoe Arbuckle. He really hated the name Fatty, so I'm going to continue to call him Roscoe. Okay. Uh, I would also not like to be known to history as Fatty. <laughs> um, he was a much loved um, silent film star. Sorry. And no, it's, I mean, <laughs> you don't think about it, but it's fatty like, God, everybody for a hundred years has been calling this guy fatty. And he was like, yeah, yeah can yeah. you call me something else? And they were like, no, absolutely not. Yeah. So Roscoe is his name, much loved, but um, he is at a party in San Francisco and this young woman dies. I think she drank too much. And then later it's discovered that actually she had been missing some of her organs because she had a couple of abortions. Wait, what? Yeah. She had so, uh, some of her reproductive organs had been taken out during oh, abortions. Okay. 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 And there was an internal hemorrhaging and she died four year four days after the party. Okay. Uh, to our knowledge, Roscoe has n- nothing but like he put this young woman in a room uh, to help her recover. But there's another woman there. She's sort of this fabulous. <laughs> We've been talking about those. Yeah. And she starts spinning all these narratives uh, that are pretty wild. And the press gets hold of them. Like many of these things, this is a story about a about a slavering press that is looking for uh, looking for sensationalized narratives. Now, one of the interesting things about this moment is that it coincides with a moralism backlash in the American experience. So Wait, what 19, year is this, Sarah? So this is 19, 20, 21, 22. Okay. And these are the years of prohibition. And some of the groups that have been leading, you know, they've won the charge against prohibition. Alcohol is now illegal, whatever that means and however it's going to be enforced. But they're starting to turn their eyes on Hollywood. Hollywood has been sort of this... I don't know, like delivery system of some, some, what some people consider hedonistic ideas. You see some women's ankles, you see some, some implications of sex. And this is when they're going to introduce the Hayes Code. Mm-hmm. They start regulating themselves. Um, but the Fatty Arbuckle, I'm sorry, the Roscoe Arbuckle story becomes a story that, again, I've talked about this before, it's the story that we needed to get what we wanted, which was to portray Hollywood as a town, a reckless town of hedonism. Now, like many of these stories, there's probably truth in in that one. I bought Hollywood Babylon recently at a vintage store. The cover of it is so incredible. It's Jane Mansfield with her tatas out. Like she's wearing this beautiful dress, but like one of her sides is dipped down and you can see her nipple and i'm just like 
Like, if you're turning into an anime character, I want to turn into Jan Mansfield on the cover of Hollywood Babylon slowly. Is it the one where Sophia Loren is looking in her... Okay, so the cover of Hollywood Babylon that I had, and I, God, I might still have it. I sold all my books when I when I moved from Portland. I sold them to Powell's when I moved from Portland to New York City, but I may have kept it. Um, I'm going to go get it. Oh, go get it. Okay, so I will just tell the listeners, the one that I had was a picture of Elizabeth Taylor when she was at her high watermark in weight. I mean, she was quite quite big at this point. And she's, I think she's sitting in the back of a car and it's just, um, and it, it's just one of these pictures. And it's also sort of stylized on a black cover. It's just to make her look just sort of like so decadently sort of grotesque as compared to the Elizabeth Taylor that our, our fathers or grandfathers, um, were, uh, were in love with. Okay. Let's see the cover of your By the book. way, Jane Mansfield went to my high school. Did she, and didn't she die young in a car accident? She died in a car accident. Um, her daughter, Mariska Hargitay, Right. Who's an actress. Who's an actress on Law and Order Special Victims Unit and who's one of the most naturally beautiful women I've ever seen in real life. She is. She's really, she's, because you know why? She also looks kind of to me, and I have to admit, I don't even know if I've ever seen her act. I've seen her like in promos for the show back like 20 something years ago. She's got this look where you could also see her just like shit kicking out with the horses. Completely. You know, she's, she's just like, like hot, tough, cool yeah she's Ugh. she's a looker she's a looker she's beautiful this is my hollywood babylon cover can you see this nancy rommelman she i can see her entire left breast and and a quite and a nipple like the whole thing and those actually look like real breasts which are so nice isn't that nice yes, ma'am. just to see real breasts that have some like a little pendulum swing in there you know they, they do a little blooping you know, that we, I was talking with someone the other day about how one actually is sexy about breasts. So obviously, look, there are probably people that get like magnificently terrific breast jobs done, but a lot of people don't. And because the reasons they're getting them done may be because they think, I don't know, it's going to give them more of identity, make them feel better, whatever. I, people do whatever they want to their bodies, but it would be nice if they did a good job. But in any case, you see these boobs and they've got these cleavages that are now up to their neck and mm-hmm. they look kind of like pushed out in bed. But what's actually, what I think is actually sexy about boobs in a shirt is like the the outside like like the rounded part on the outside that looks like you could just touch it and it'd be like be like nice like springy soft biscuit dough. Biscuit dough. <laughs> it's true. You sound I like think, you know it's true. But dough. Okay, I'm gonna. You know we're we're talking about doing special things for um. Wow, where's this going? Wait, what's the name? What's the name of this podcast, Sarah Hepla? Smoke them if you got them. That's right. So we're talking about doing special things. We're going to have like a little book club thingy. You're going to do maybe a movie thing. We're going to do some uh, Ask Me Anything, especially. I'm going to make you do one about Depp Heard. What I really want to do is uh, do some baking videos and not so much. Look, here's the thing. Yeah, watching a, 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 a woman cook is not a terrible thing. But there's this actual magic that happens when you're baking, like the uh, the the when when the ingredients become something else. And proper biscuit dough is that thing. Let me tell you something: proper biscuit or bread dough is a living thing, and I can poke it and show you. So I'll try to I'll try to make a video of that. I think we got a little off track here. I just want to say something real quick. I have yeah. a friend who listens to our podcast on her way to work and back, and it's about thirty minutes round trip. So because she's also wanted to stay current, she's only listening listen to the first 30 minutes of like several of our episodes. And 
I am realizing that she probably thinks our podcast is like entirely about boobs. Well, but but, but who doesn't love boobs? I mean, really, who doesn't love boobs? I'm going to tell you another reason that I have nothing against fake boobs because whatever to each his own and some of them look quite good. But uh, I'm going to tell you a difference between fake boobs and real boobs. I live in Dallas, Texas, which is one of the like hot spots of, of breast implant surgery. And when you hug a woman that has a fake boob, you get a oh, kind of like, ouch, <laughs> like hard knock yep. in your in your chest. And you're like, whoa, what hard knocker? Like, what what was that? Like, what just happened to yep. me? And I'm gonna tell you something about real boobs. Soft. Okay. So that is absolutely true. I hugged a, a gal I knew many years ago and I hugged her and I was like, okay, what is that? And she's like, Nancy, I had eight children. I was like, okay. So, you know, she had her boobs done afterwards. Um, I have had more than one guy friend who like was out on a date and reached for the goods and was like, oh yeah. Wasn't, wasn't, you know, kind of for, for this particular person was a little bit of a disappointment that it was a fake boob. But in any case, maybe some people um, don't care. And I could tell you the, the opposite of that, a friend of mine I was with in uh, Austin last week, she's four months pregnant and she's at that stage where like, she's not really showing very much her belly, but her boobs are gigantic. And I hugged her. I was like, girl, it was like, you know, I could barely kiss her cheek because her boobs were in the way, but they were, they were delightfully, uh, delightfully soft. Um, yeah. You know how you're doing a true crime book club that, um, you, we still need to hear details about how that's going to work. Yep. Um, I am also doing a movie club, but I'm thinking maybe I want to do like a Hollywood book club. Meaning Ooh. books about Hollywood, because that is a fascination for me that I, and I really think Hollywood Babylon would be a great title. Now, I've been told by um, some friends that it's a lot of made up stuff. You know, Hollywood Babylon, which attempts to rip the veil from the, you know, the the stories of Hollywood in itself introduces many new mythologies that were not fact checked, etc. I'd have to look into this. I don't know. But I would love to read it. And see what it is that it's saying. You know, I do feel like after a hundred years, like I almost feel like the Fatty Arbuckle in trial in 1921-22 and the Depp Heard trial in 2022 represent certain bookends of the American celebrity moment. And... Absolutely. Um, before we, because I do want to hear more about Roscoe Arbuckle. Um, two books that I would add to that one is "You'll Never Eat Lunch in This Town Again" by Julia, who I'm blanking on her last name, but boy, did she have some stories to Isn't tell. Isn't that Linda Opst? I thought it was Linda Opst. No, no. Julia's oh, I, I gave the wrong name last time. Yeah, and then, um, and then, uh, um, uh, Miss Lonely Hearts, which is fiction, but it's just a heartbreaker of a book. About I would love to read so. that. You know, I thought about calling my second book Lonely Hearts mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, with uh, as a reference to that book. And m- everybody told me it would be too sad. It, the name sounded too sad. And maybe also Ask the Dust. But we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about at the end of this episode, we'll talk a little bit about that kind of stuff. But let's, um, let's go on to what actually, did you finish up with what actually had happened at the, uh, well, we know, so he put her down. She wasn't feeling very well at this party. This uh, fabulous comes in and starts spinning tales for whatever her reasons were. Maybe she was getting yeah. paid. Maybe it was because she wanted some sunshine for herself. Maybe she was confused or whatever. So now this story hits, and you know this is back in the day when there were like 
gossip columnists and working for the studios. And, you know, if they wanted to run with a story, they were just going to let it rip without a lot of competition. So so what happened, Sarah Hepla? There are three trials. The first two result in hung juries. Um, the third one, he has finally acquitted. But by the time that he's acquitted, and I believe Buster Keaton actually spoke uh, for his defense, you know, Chaplin and Keaton did not turn their backs on him, even though he That's was wonderful. a blacklisted individual. And that says a lot for their character. A hundred percent. The stakes were very high. But even though he's acquitted, you know, his marriage has broken apart. He is banned by this new guy, Will Hayes, who's running the oh. this the hey that he's introducing the Hayes code that will that will introduce all these rules into Hollywood films. The ban is later lifted, but it you know, it the damage is done. Nobody can have him in their movies. Um, Charlie Chaplin does, I, this was news to me. Um, do you know Charlie Chaplin's famous little thing where he puts two rolls on forks and pretends like he's walking? Yeah. 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 Well, that was first done by Roscoe Arbuckle and that was a tribute to his friend. Oh, Sarah. And, you know, it's fascinating that Chaplin makes that famous. It was actually Roscoe Arbuckle imitating the funny way that his friend Charlie Chaplin walked. So all of this comes from a BBC documentary, a 2011 documentary that I watched um, the first installment of called The Birth of Hollywood. It's hosted by British comedian Peter... What is it? His name is Peter Merton. And the author of that book you were looking for earlier, her name is Julia Phillips. Julia she Phillips. She wrote, yeah. you'll never eat lunch in this town again. Anyway, this is a story about the villain that we needed. And every generation tells a different one. We, we, we exactly, we get the heroes and the villains we need. I've, I've written about this myself uh, with different people. You know, if, if let's say a Laura Albert didn't exist, we would have had to create her. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Okay. You know, we're here to talk about a bunch of things this morning, Sarah, but I think what the people really need from you right away um, is is catching us up with um, some Depp Heard stuff. I I was, I will just say one thing. I, obviously I wasn't at the trial. You were, you've paid, you've watched so many, what now, 18,000 hours of the testimony. Um, But I, I was interested this weekend to read three different pieces. Um, we, we'd been talking about the real sort of dearth of pieces about the trial and, and our supposition, our idea was, well, you know, whichever way this trial goes, you will then get the big think pieces about why either, um, well, most of the mainstream media, it will be, if if it doesn't go Amber Heard's way, the pieces will be C, See, again, again, a powerful man is able to stomp out a woman and her story. This is why, this is the, this is the reason why we've had, you know, we've been trying to make changes and Me Too and et cetera, et cetera. And we're disappointed again and we're never going to do better and it's all doomsday. And we did, we did see uh, a piece like that in The Guardian 
this weekend that you sent to me, which I thought was I, I'm I'm no I'm no big fan of the Guardian this day, these days in general. But this piece was just such a blunt object. It was like it was like like a rock hitting another rock. There was nothing nuanced. There was nothing particularly interesting. There was nothing new. That said, there were two pieces that were, to my mind, um, yes. new and sort of nuanced. One uh, was in the New York Times, uh, which I, I was just, and I, I'm, I'm sorry, we're going to have links to all of these pieces. I'm not remembering. You do remember who wrote the one in the Times, I believe. Jessica Bennett, who's the the new columnist on gender, I think. I, I have to say, I was I was pretty impressed. It wasn't that, I, first of all, it's not up to me to agree or disagree with this stuff. It's it, That's not why I'm reading this. I'm reading it to see wh- what their take is. And I thought she kind of ranged nicely. Nicely, you know, kind of back and forth. I thought that she had a few interesting things to say. And then the other piece, which was took an interesting angle, which was in uh, The Atlantic, which was quite a long piece, um, just talking about what the what other people are having to say and what it's spawning in the culture. And it also wasn't like a particularly negative or positive for either party piece. So I thought that was good. But you made a good point to me yesterday when we were talking. You're like, yes, Nancy, but these are still all sort of like thinky or opinion pieces. We are not getting any, as far as I know, and obviously we could be wrong here, any other real reporting from the trial, from the American press outside of Court TV, which is in the courtroom, and then what is it called? Law and Court? Law uh, and Crime. Law and Crime. So that is, I mean, I'm I'm actually pretty shocked about this. You are less shocked because you've been there. So since you have been on the ground, let's talk about it a little bit, Sarah. So I interviewed Nick Wallace, who is the British journalist behind the podcast uh, reporting Depp v. Heard. I did an interview with him that we're going to put out later this week or maybe even before this I think yep. maybe right after this podcast cool. drops. Um, one of the things I mentioned was this dearth of reporters. I had my own theories. You had yours. We've talked about it before. Wallace has a different uh, perspective, which is that the judge didn't make any allotment for them in the courtroom. So in the first few weeks, you had the New York Post, you had the Daily Mail, you had some of the local Washington papers. Well, once you get into the crowds descending and they have to wait, the journalists have to wait overnight and camp out overnight. There's no way you're going to do that and file your story and do all your interview. You just can't do it. So it disincentivized those reporters from going to the courthouse. And they began, one assumes, to just watch it on court TV. So that is one perspective here. Um, I still maintain that the lack of American journalists covering the culture around um, the courthouse is, you know what though? It's just completely of the moment. Everybody's doing it from their own home. They're covering this virtually and they can complain about like, how dare this be broadcast on court TV, yada, yada, yada. This is disgusting. But like, it basically allows people to not leave their homes and cover one of the biggest stories in the country. And so, but, you know, I would say what you're missing here is what it's actually like there, the incredible, fascinating subcultures that have resulted. Again, I'll be writing about that later. This is the last week of testimony in the Depp Heard trial. Johnny Depp is going to be taking the stand again today as part of his rebuttal. So that will be very high profile because the last few days of Heard's testimony Uh, Hertz had been 
had been a bunch of depositions from her friends that hadn't showed up in person. In a lot of ways, it's because they had all had falling outs with Amber Heard. Okay, so that's very interesting. Yeah. That, that I mean, obviously people will say, well, look, if people had, if people... If Depp had people show up for him, that's because they're being paid a lot of the times. And that's probably true. I mean, if you're talking, you're seeing his bodyguards and other people and lawyers, he he has been paying them. Heard is a problematic character, or at least a complicated one uh, or, or something. Uh, and her friends are not being paid, though I think some of them stayed for free in her former husband's penthouse. Um, yeah. But them not showing up is, I mean, I don't know, Sarah Heppola, if like you needed me to show up in court for you, I'm going to come. You know, it does say something about the the sort of caliber of what your what your friendships are. Well, there's been a lot of, I think, good commentary around the way that Amber Heard has become a much despised figure and that the social media backlash has been insane. And so accompanying her into the courthouse, which, by the way, there's this whole line for Johnny Depp and he waves and everything. And she just like sneaks in like a thief in the night. Like she does not want to see anybody. So do, I can are you understand then- that people might not want to accompany her. I, I, I'm just, I'm saying that the vitriol heaped on her would make sense of people not, like her not having as much of an entourage. However, more than one person that has testified through deposition has said, you know, we're not friends anymore. Her best friend, Rocky Pennington, who is there for much of this drama and testified on her behalf uh, in the UK trial, is deposed here. And, you know, my understanding is they had an altercation. It's very unclear what happened. Rocky hit, slapped Amber, Amber punched Rocky. What? I I don't even know. Somehow they have a really bad falling out and these women that were best friends are now not speaking to each other. Um, There's another dude, his name is Io, I-O, two vowels. And um, I thought he gave a credible deposition, Um, but he also says he's not friends with her anymore. You know, I don't, I don't know what's going on here. Uh, One could argue that the stress and the, um, just the trauma of her experience has made it very difficult to be close to her. But if so, like, wow, that's some fair weather friends. And I actually got the sense that these were friends that rallied around her during a time when she was telling them that she had been a victim of abuse. They were also all friends with Johnny. So, uh, you know, I, this is, it's, it's very oh, that's difficult. interesting. You know, but they, but they testified, you know, not very favorably about him. Io, uh, again, that's a guy, uh, tells a story that on his wedding day, Depp turns to him and says, well, I'm getting married. Now I can't, what does he say? It's something like, now they can't do anything to me if I hit her. Oh, Jesus. Now, first of all, that is that's- based on some interesting pre-1970s. <laughs> marital laws. (laughs) Second of all, that sounds like something dumb Hunter S. Thompson said once that Johnny Depp just repeated. I I would find that pretty shocking that someone would say that. I mean, I guess maybe someone could say it as a joke. As a joke. I mean, um, look, the, 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 
because the media is turning away from this story, and I have a few more thoughts on why that is, because I had a lot of conversations with friends over the weekend that seemed to think that my covering this trial was some sort of horrible injustice that had been enacted upon me by some publication that forced me to go cover the Depp Heard trial. Yeah, I I had a lot of people saying like, so you went to the Depp Heard trial, like, do you just feel like sad in your stomach that you have to cover that? And I was like, oh, oh, friend, you have me very different. You have me very wrong. So these are not journalists, I'm assuming. They're not. (laughs) No, of course not. Uh, but But they're smart consumers who are making an, a, a reasonable blanket assumption that that trial is garbage, that there is nothing to see there, that it is only a sort of um, craven public that is interested. In. And, and within each case, I would sort of take some time and say, you know, maybe I also had a dismissive feeling about this case. I've come to see that it has a lot of interesting vectors around culture wars, gender wars, addiction, celebrity American culture. And they're sort of like, oh, okay. Yeah, I just don't want to look at it. And I'm like, fair enough. But I mean, yeah, sure. Like, but that's that's a very different thing than that we shouldn't be covering it. Than saying there's nothing there. Then than right. saying there's nothing yeah. there. There's yeah. no there yeah. there. Or saying they're just yeah. two assholes. You know, why are we watching this? Well, there's a lot of really interesting stories that come down to their two assholes. And, you know, it's it's not about whether or not we like them as people. In fact, I think one of the things this could do, or maybe I wish it would do, is disavow people of the idea that celebrity is a worthy goal, that celebrity is not a delusion and a fantasy that they've been sold. Um, people don't seem to want to to be robbed of that dream. They hold on to that dream very tightly. And we'll maybe we'll talk about that in the Atlantic piece, uh, which talks about fandom. I wanted to address a couple thing, couple of the stories that you mentioned, the Guardian piece, um, whose headline is Me Too is over if we don't listen to imperfect victims. And the subhead is when even young women join the actors' male tormentors, ideas of justice soon begin to unravel. Well, I'm going to have a, I'm going to have a different take on this. I'm going to say that when even young women join a crusade against a woman they see as complicated and having lied, you're getting something closer to a more nuanced justice because I don't like gender tribalism. But boy, you're singing to the choir there. And the idea that we're all supposed to support women, I, I just don't buy it. It's exactly the same thing. There's absolutely no difference in saying that than saying we're supposed to support all men. We're supposed to support all women. We're supposed to support all Catholics. We're supposed to support all people that went to Harvard. There's absolutely, this is just like, this basically makes people not people at all. It makes them a totem. And if you don't stand behind that, you are somehow the bad person. Well, I, you know, we've got due process, which I love, and we have brains, and we believe people have agency. And when you have agency, that means you are you are allowed to, and that you will, because we know they will anyway, act well and act badly. And I would like to judge. I may actually put the little link. I haven't done it yet, but that little um that little video I think I did for um for a. Uh, 
what's it called? Um, Prager U, talking about talking That's really about, good. Would you please put it, that in there? I, I will. really liked that video. I, I will because the reason it's like it's it's like we have to judge each thing on its own merits. I understand. I let me let me say that I am not unsympathetic to the idea that there has been sort of blanket bad behavior against certain groups of people historically. We know that that's true. I have, a, I have a Native American daughter, okay? Like, you can't say, like, oh, everything's been fine, and, you know, it hasn't been. There have been historically terrible things have happened. And, you know, until, what, 100 years ago or so, women couldn't vote. They couldn't own property in certain countries. I mean, right. things are getting better every single day. However, because terrible things happened in the past, that does not mean we ignore what's in front of our face case by case. I mean, that's that that I, I think this is the only way that you can go through life fairly and treat people fairly. Anyway, sorry for my my little diatribe there. No, I appreciate it. I wanted to read you a sentence from this and ask for your thoughts on it. Is that okay? Yes. Yes. <clears throat> you could say the whole project of feminism is about taking bad things that happened to women, which they thought only happened to them or were their fault, and calling them by one name divide us back into unlinked individuals who might be lying and the movement is lost. So she is saying that I must, every bad thing that has ever happened to me or that I perceive a bad thing that has happened to me, I axiomatically must link arms with every other woman who perceives she's had a bad thing happen to her in order for us to have the sort of combined nuclear power to fight back. Yeah, that, a, am I translating a, yes, that right? And I think it's a united we rise, divided we fall sort of idea. I, I don't, I, I disagree with that sentence. First of all, I have to be the person who decides whether I think something bad or good has happened to me. Nobody else. I am not, I don't want to get on a train with people that I may not think that they have a leg to stand on. No, no. I. But I've told you this five billion times. I don't want to be part of any group. I don't want to be the libertarian, Democrat, feminist. I don't want any of it. None of it. I don't, don't, don't like, don't put the itchy sweater of single motherhood on me. It's mother writer and baker. That's it. And then nothing else. I'm not, I'm not taking anything else. I, I was sort of, it was one of those sentences that was said with such authority that I was sort of like, oh, is that what the project of feminism is about? I mean, look, we could have a very long, there could be a very long series of podcasts on what the project of feminism was about. I always think of it as a, as a project of personal agency and and choices, that it expands women's choices. And part of what happens with, with expanding choices is that you also expand the potential f to make the wrong choices and to feel disappointed by your choices. And um, I... I don't know. I okay, hold on a second. But choices, that's exactly right. We get to choose what we want. I, absolutely. We get to choose what we want to do, right? But if you if you pledge that we must all be part of this one unit, then you are axiomatically taking away my choices. It's sort of like um right. it's sort of like like if you're if you're if you have your own individual health insurance policy, well you can make certain choices. This doctor that blah blah. But if you're in an HMO, well you got to do what the group decides to do. Yeah, I mean, to me, the project of feminism is about free thought, not doctrinaire thought, not 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 dogma. 
I, I mean, Sarah, obviously we're doing this podcast together. Yes, I, I agree with you. And I really don't want people telling me, and I don't think they want me telling them that if the, you don't believe you don't believe the way I do, then you're part of the problem. I mean, and I believe me, I have had people say that to me. You know, you are part of the problem, Nancy Rommelman, because you don't believe the way we do. I'm like, well, if, what? Why can't we all believe the way we want to believe? And come and tell me and convince and talk, but we don't all have to stand on the same leg. Sorry, I'm 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 blabbing here. Keep keep going well, with you your You are party. part of the problem, Nancy, and I well, just happen I to be part of the problem too. <laughs> the problem's so cute. Um, <laughs> I, by the way, one of my favorite sentences that you said was like, "I really love due process," and I think. I think that we we are expanding our empire by leaps and bounds with our book clubs and 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 movie clubs and such. But I would like to see merchandise that is like one of those like t- tight, like baby doll T-shirts that is like the Tata shirt. And it I, says I, hot for due process. I, I I will be creating it once we get off of here. Yes. Thank hot, God. hot for due process. Welcome. Okay. Um, okay. So uh, the other one that I wanted to bring up was the Jessica Bennett piece in the New York Times. I think this was an excellent um, op-ed as well. I look, many people have brought up to me the grotesque exhibit of TikTok commentary that is also kind of funny. Um, there is a gross backlash against Amber Heard. I do not support it. I think it also doesn't happen in a vacuum. I think, you know, for years during Me Too, as I saw this sort of monolithic, only women can talk, you can't talk, you're a white man, shut the hell up. I wondered what seeds we were sowing in the culture. Because nothing happens in a vacuum we react and grow in response to each other. And I think on TikTok and in certain comedians, like, I don't know, I I had a guy friend tell me today that a lot of the comedians are talking about this, uh, this trial, like with like, like it's the peace cords accords in the Middle East, like, they're just really focused on the excesses of me too. Which, you know, would make sense to me because for like four or five years, the, the, the thing was, you can't talk. And if you tell someone you can't talk and you don't have anything to say, it's, it's going to create a reaction. And maybe that reaction takes five years, maybe it takes 10 years, maybe it takes 20 years. But that is in many ways what the very Me Too movement was about that a lot of women had felt that they weren't allowed to talk. And the overcorrection was that men couldn't talk. And this is the mess that we made together. I would like to get out of it together, which means that I believe we all get to talk. Well, that's the whole idea with when what what speech can, you know, the people that are like, well, free speech, you can't have all free speech. No, you actually have to have all of it. All of it. It, even maybe especially the stuff you don't like. And, you know, uh, we've, we've talked a little bit about uh, Jonathan Rausch's book, uh, Kindly Executioners, and, and his idea, which is a lot of people's ideas. Like, you let, the, you let the ideas get in the forum and fight it out, and the good ones win and the bad ones lose, right? But when you start, the, start trying to outlaw the things that you don't like or that your people or your group doesn't like, 
Do you think that where do the bad guy ideas go? They just go, oh, uh, uncle, we're just going to go away. No, they're going to find a way to talk. And sometimes it's going to be in like weird hermetic environments, right? Which can be kind of gross. So yeah, we have to, everybody has to say their piece. And and I, I am interested in what the people that are, are maybe a little, what I would consider over the top, like on the other side of being like sort of really cruel to herd. Yeah. I don't like it either. I don't think it, I don't... I mean, I don't like this kind of this kind of speech in any case or people doing this stuff online. I just feel like people have to be a little more mature and a little more thoughtful than just like slinging poo around. But, you know, we're going to get a lot of that online, too. So Bennett's column, um, it, it calls this a good old fashioned public pillorying. You know, we've been having Puritan pillory imagery floated into the conversation really since the Me Too movement began. So I found it very interesting. I mean, I don't disagree with her statement. I find it interesting that she doesn't extend that to the original cancellation of Johnny Depp after this piece. In other words, if this is happening, which I agree with her it is, it is not the first time this is happening. In, you know, with, within these two people. Within these two people. I mean, she says when it comes to public opinion, we might as well be marching our Amber Heard through the town square. Okay, yeah, I agree. I also think that happened to a lot of guys in the Me Too movement. And when that was brought up, you know, the justice of righteousness was brought down on their head that we're just going to have to break a few eggs to get, you know, like the Al Frankens and the Aziz Ansaris are just going to have to get thrown under the bus so that we can, we can create justice. And, you know, I really have to wonder, I, I am starting to, you know, there's such a lack of faith in the criminal justice system right now. And the number of stories, I mean, a lot of my friends are journalists and they write all these stories about how the bunk science that's used and the bad, you know, the innocent people that are behind bars. And then of course we have like m many different strains of social justice that are, that are paying attention to the privatized jail, prison system, et cetera, et cetera. It's such a mess and there's such a lack of faith. I really start to wonder if what we have done unconsciously is to outsource justice to social media a while ago. So that oh. in other words, what happens in this trial, we've said this again and again, doesn't make sense. I mean, doesn't matter. Because what really matters is the court of public opinion. And it has superseded what is happening in the actual American legal, legal justice system, which is a worrisome thing. It's, it's Sarah, we've, we've talked about this now. We, we will, we'll talk another time about Brock Turner. We've talked about this in the Duke lacrosse case. It's like, sure, maybe at the end of the day or that, 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 you know, these kids are exonerated, but what happened in the meantime, I'm talking about the Duke lacrosse rape scandal. It's like, what happened in the meantime? People's lives are destroyed. And the people that were the destroyers because they got their voices out there in the court of public opinion way before, I mean, you can get your voice out there on Twitter in five seconds. How long is it going to take for me to go to trial if something happens? It could take months. Meanwhile, you've destroyed things. I wanted to, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about Joan Didion later, yeah. but talking about breaking eggs. This was, um, she wrote a piece about the women's movement. Obviously, I'm not going to read the whole thing in 1972. And she, you know, people have certainly gotten down on her about this, but it's a pretty good, pretty, uh, pretty saucy quote uh, from Didion. To make an omelet, you need not only those broken eggs, but someone 
in quotes, oppressed, to beat them. Every revolutionist is presumed to understand that and also every woman, which either does or does not make 51% of the population of the United States a potentially revolutionary class. So a lot of people, I think, like the idea, and not just women, uh, like the idea of having historical oppression now work in quotes, in your favor. Now, I say that and people are like, that's pretty glib, Nancy. And I'm like, well, I don't really mean it like that. What I mean it mean is that people are ready and to, to look back on that oppression and say, if it doesn't go Amber Heard's way, see, nothing changes. Nothing changes. I know. I, that, that line makes me insane when they say nothing changes. And it's like um, at a moment when women are outnumbering men at the college level and they have had this like unprecedented rise in culture and the difference between 2022 and 1972 when you couldn't even own a car or go into some bars because you were a woman is like, oh no, nothing's changed except for everything. I have a, I'm just going to do one little, little dog leg here. Uh, and I, I only listened to the first part, but um, Matt Taibbi put out a, a series of pieces last week about um, sort of how the California lawyers have destroyed certain things in the culture. And I'm going to get all of this wrong. I think it was Google, but it could have been it could have been Google and another um, company. There was a lawsuit uh, against them claiming that they had uh, discriminated, paid discrimination against women, and so it was like this long, long process and lawyers and coming in. And it turned out at the end of the day that what the case was based in, and by the way, the person who pressed the case lost. It was based on like one line of a woman that had worked there before, but she wasn't even in hiring. Just saying, like, you know, women don't you know, pay is, an, is negotiated also. Like you go right. in and I'm like, Sarah Heppel, I'm going to hire you. And you're like, okay, so that sounds great. And I offer you $120,000 a year. And you're like, okay, well, I might go in and someone says the same thing to me. And I'm like, dude, I need 150. And they, they give it to me because they want it. So apparently, and I do not know the data on this, don't jump down my throats, peoples. Um, but it was understood and it kind of makes sense that men historically have been, um, they've negotiated a little harder for better pay. Absolutely. Which, which kind of makes sense for a couple of reasons. Men can sometimes be a little more aggressive. Women are newer to the field uh, in higher jobs. Also, historically, men have been like supporting the family more than women have. So like, it's like, shit, I don't just need money for like- Financially need... supporting the family. Yeah, they yes. financially supporting. Not exactly, not, not in the home, but like financially. So they needed the dough. And so I was like, so I can, like, you look at it in one way and say, shit, women are being paid less. It's like, yeah, that sucks. That's stupid. That's inequitable if they're doing the same job. But it's like, okay, well, like did back a little further. Like maybe there were other reasons. Maybe it just wasn't that Google was like being dicks about hiring. It was like, cause maybe this particular gal or a group of them didn't fight hard enough. Well, that's, you know what? That's a cool lesson. That's a cool lesson that says, all right, cool. I now, now I know. I didn't know. I didn't know. I, I had never done it before. I now know that I, when I go in, I got to ask for mine. And actually, in my life, I have done this. Like, I have been like, actually, you know what? I need you to pay me this. And, and people have. But you know what? I asked, as opposed to just going like, you know what? This is terrible. It's stacked against me, and it's never been worse. Well, no. 
open your mouth. Any case, that's a, I'll put a link. I've only listened to the first part, but it's a really interesting story. And Taibi does this super well, like unpacking how these things actually happen. And it's, it, it's always eye-opening. Anyway. Gender wage gap is a complicated beast. And, uh, and I, I think it's a fascinating story. Um, I wanted to mention a story that I found. I never sent it to you, but it was in Forbes and I really liked it. And I'd like to mention it here because it made, this one really focused on what they call the Johnny Depp stands. Of course, if you're an older, if you're one of our, if you're one of our older listeners, the word stands, S-T-A-N-S has basically replaced super fans because of the Eminem song, which is about Stan, the, uh, fan that tries to, I think, kill Eminem or does in that song. Anyway, um, so this is about Johnny Depp stands and you know, this is, this is a really fascinating story. The way that YouTubers and TikTokers have been enabled by probably audio leaks given from the Depp side. Uh, there was a guy whose name I believe is Alan Waldman who is one of Johnny Depp's attorneys. He was deposed last week as well. And he is the reason that Amber Heard is suing Johnny Depp. Because, remember, there's a countersuit in this claim. And it's because, acting as Johnny Depp's attorney, he gave quotes to the Daily Mail saying that basically Amber and her friends use sexual abuse allegations as a sword and shield. And um, he... The, the deposition was in some ways like almost hilarious because he had somebody there that kept saying, you know, I would re- like somebody off screen that was saying like, I recommend that you not answer this on grounds that it might incriminate you. And then he would say, I accept the advice of my counsel. And it was just like for like 20 minutes, it was that. Um, but there was still some like some like meat on those bones in terms of his you know, one of the things they tried to do was set him up as giving audio leaks to YouTubers. And one of his points was, listen, I'm not giving audio leaks. I'm talking to online journalists the same way that I would talk to print journalists if they would talk to me. <laughs> well, this is one of the things, a lot of the articles we've talked about, or not articles, but people complain. It's like, God, how, you know, why in, why in the world are people like watching YouTube and TikTok for coverage of this story? It's like, well, because nature abhors a void. And if you don't have people like you going on the ground or Nick Wallace, they're going to go where they can get their news. But I want to clarify something because I didn't really understand it until this moment when you brought it up. So Johnny Depp is suing (laughs) Amber Heard for $50 million for defamation based on the 2018 uh, Washington Post opinion piece that she wrote, which in fact she did not write, which was written by the ACLU, which I also find interesting, Sarah Heppala, in all three articles that we read this weekend in The Atlantic and in The Times and in The Guardian, they mention, of course, the piece, but they don't mention that it was written by the ACLU, which is, I have to say, of the two things that drive me the most berserk in this entire case, that's number one. As a journalist, I am so outraged that the Washington Post let this come through. And I know we've got friends who have been, and and you've been an editor and I've got opinion page editors. And they're like, Nancy, look, well, you get the famous people coming in. They don't write their pieces. We expect that. I'm like, yeah, but with, with this particular piece, which was so bald. So that's number one. I'm also interested, obviously, in finding out whether, um, you know, who's a fabulist in this case, which is always my thing um, that I'm, that I'm interested in. Anyway, yeah. oh, so oh, so what I was going to ask was, 
What is the countersuit? The countersuit is against this attorney? No, it's against Johnny Depp. But by how? what the journey said. It's funny. They've both been puppeted. Like they both are suing each other over things somebody else said for them. Holy Acting moly. As agents of their message. So this lawyer, Waldman, he gave quotes to the Daily Mail that, that, that she's suing over defamation. But since Depp hired him, he's acting as his agent. And the judge, we could, we could have Waldman and the ACLU in there, but we don't. We've got exactly. They're they're not telegenic. I mean, hey, no, they're Um, not. But this Forbes piece, I just want to make a couple other points that it that it shares because I thought they were interesting. I mean, you asked about some of the really disgusting things that Depp fans have done. I mean, this goes into it a little bit more. And, you know, one of the things that's happened is that that Twitter users uh, banged, ganged up on Depp's daughter, Lily Rose, for not supporting her father enough. And you can go to the Twitter thread and see a bunch of people saying, like, how how come you haven't spoken out about your father? Like, like, like she owes anything to anyone. Like, this is anybody's business, what she thinks. Like, you know, this is already difficult enough for her. So that was really disgusting. Um, the other point that he makes is that the Depp case could set a precedent for abusers suing their victims. Now, uh, you know, that's another way to say that is that it could set a precedent for falsely accused men to sue women who have defamed them. Um, however, this is going to just depend on on which way you see this story. He he mentions that Marilyn Manson, who is Johnny Depp's close fa- friend, and they always bring that up in the in the trial. By the way, they're always they will never miss a chance to to to, to remind us that he was hanging out with Marilyn Manson at some place. Um, he's now suing Evan Rachel Wood. So yeah. it, it th- this it, it, and, and I got to be honest with you. I, well, I do think it's a little troubling, partly because I want people to stop taking this to court. I want people to start working this out on their own without lawyers. We have right. an, we have an American story that ends in the justice system and the only people that win in these stories are the lawyers. Well, but wait a minute, but you also just said it's not just the justice system and maybe maybe that's better or it's the court of public opinion. I mean, yes, we can have people work things out for themselves, but these are people that are public figures. It's never going to it's it's not going to happen also. We don't know like we just don't know the genesis of this relationship, how much, you know, real love there was, how much, you know, for for fame, for this. We don't we don't know any of this. And I would just like to a total aside, because I was when I was posting links to our last episode, which you all obviously should go listen to, that um that surveillance camera in the elevator of um of James Franco and Amber Heard, you do notice that he keeps his head down the entire time. Like yeah. this is someone who is savvy about there's an ele- there's a camera in this elevator and I'm going to just try to pretend it's not me. Whereas she's just flipping her hair and you know, barefoot. And anyway, I, I got James Franco with me in this elevator, y'all. Yeah. I yeah. hope my um, I hope my ex-husband notices this surveillance footage. Um, I, I, one thing I want to mention, you sounded like you were about to switch topics and I just no. I wanted to just mention one thing when when people first of all, people uh, publicly calling out Johnny Depp's daughter is 
is absolutely disgusting. Stop it. I know none of our people would do that. Just putting a pitch in there. I also saw in one of the articles yesterday that there was some someone that was like claiming that Amber Heard had had her mother murdered. Like none oh, of crazy. this is this, conspiracy it's theories all, are crazy. And but it's also one reason. Like when I, if I'm working as a journalist and like as I'm publishing an article and I, you know, I'm, people are on the record or there's something legal, I have to mention it. But when I'm just going online and talking about like something somebody awful has like maybe said to me or something that I'm calling out. I don't mention people's names or handles because people people are crazy and they will show up at their kids' school. Yeah. It's just a it's just a good idea to not try to encourage this thing that people right now, I swear to God, it's like they've all been infected with a virus. The virus of seeing others publicly brought down. It's almost like it's almost like those 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 zombie TV shows that they've got to get another bite of human flesh and this is what we we see online. It's just expose, expose, expose and it's like I'm really I mean it's obviously the sand piles in on you. You can't do very much about it, but like I really really do my best to never to never do that because you don't know the ancillary damage that is happening, including to people's kids. And so, yeah, stop it, people. I agree. I agree. Well said. The other thing I wanted to say about the sort of TikTok commentary, while a lot of it is a lot is is rather disgusting, a lot of it is actually quite funny. And one of the things that you'll notice in the TikTok commentary is that they are watching that trial. They are finding the moments of tension. They are plucking them out. And they are, I mean, possibly because it's a bunch of kids on summer break that have nothing to do, but they are mining it for very funny material sometimes. And I should say that a week ago, Saturday Night Live took this subject on. Ay, ay, ay. And it was a swing and a miss. It was a stinker. And no pun intended. It uh, yeah, was right? A stinker. I Bad. don't want to go into it too much, but all I want to say is that like, First of all, two things I noticed. Well, I noticed many things. Two things I want to bring up. One is that Amber Heard is not portrayed in this skit. And I think that's a complete pulled punch on their part. Well, I shouldn't say it like that. That's, you know, a lot of comic language is violent. You kind of can't get away from it. But, you know, when you're pulling your punch punches, what can I say? And this is the way that they portrayed Johnny Depp as like a basic doofus and... But also sort of cunning. Cunning, basic doofus with like some sarcastic... They knew that he made some jokes, basically. And they portray the former military judge who's been actually pretty great as a totally like amoral woman that's drinking behind the, the podium or behind the the judge's bench. It's disgusting. And the much derided by other lawyers, um, counsel of Amber Heard, as just sort of like quietly beleaguered and long-suffering. Like, I don't have that many things to say about uh, Elaine Brennerhoff, I think is her name. Um, But she has not done a stand-up job in any way. Watch her opening statement. It's unbelievably clumsy she actually refers to johnny depp's wine forever tattoo as opposed to the Winona. wino forever yeah. oh wino forever yeah well she i'm i think it like just clumsy things like that matter 
you're really betraying that you don't know this story very well. And you've been paid a lot of money to, to do that. Anyway, um, it was just so lame, but the, but the lamest part about it is that they clearly had not been watching the trial because the trial has more funny moments than that cold open did. Yeah, so for people that don't watch that in it live, and a lot of people haven't watched it since like the 80s or 90s or something like that, um, they often, the the opening skit is usually something that's happening in the culture right now. I mean, they had a field day with Donald Trump and, you know, whatever's going on and they take a moment and they they blow it up. And this was six minutes of um, of really unfunny material and um, just sort of picking out the most... Um, the sort of well, how the most scatological part of the um, trial and spending like the entire time on it. It's like how boring it was boring. It just 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 it wasn't was well done. Boring. I couldn't believe Johnny Depp had called the fecal matter in the bed a grumpy, which was so freaking hilarious. And then in the skit, they called it a boo boo, a boo boo. And I was I like, you made it less funny and you changed it. Why wouldn't you use the same word? Maybe, maybe, maybe they, um, maybe it's a registered trademark now. Grumpy. Yeah, I'll bet, yeah, I'll bet somebody yeah. trademarked that. Yeah. All right, yeah. take me out of Depland. Talk to me okay. about Joan Didion. I love her and I haven't read sure. this piece yet. So, um, so the piece is by Caitlin Flanagan, who I, I, I'm, I'm already, I, I was already crying again this morning about this piece. So I'm not going to start right away. Oh, fuck yes. I love uh, it when you cry. When you cry. Because, okay. Because it brings up your tally on the other side. My tap. What do you mean? Well, I've got so many. I cry. Oh, that's right. That's right. So I got to catch up. I got to catch up. Yeah. Okay. So, so, um, Caitlin Flanagan, I would say is maybe my favorite writer, uh, right now, uh, in the culture. She writes for the Atlantic. She writes essays. She also writes articles. She is, um, she's brilliant and kind and funny and properly angry and uh, she herself lives in California. As some of you know, Joan Didion was a Californian from Sacramento. And uh, I guess not too long ago after Joan Didion died, which was on December 23rd, 2021, uh, Caitlin got in the car with her husband and decided to visit some of the places that um, that Didion had written about in her life, um, starting with Sacramento. She was from an old Sacramento family. Uh, she had a. She considered herself a native daughter of California, and so going and seeing the different houses, then going down to Berkeley, where she had gone to school, uh, and seeing the sorority that she lived in. Um, that she went to uh, Los Angeles, where they had very famously lived during the um, '60s and I guess early '70s, and you know the counterculture that moved through there, and then to the house in Malibu. I'm, I'm going to obviously put a link to it. I will also put a link to. Uh, Flanagan, basically, but also some of her better pieces. And and one thing to know about Flanagan is that she's um she's been suffering from cancer for, I think it's probably close to two decades now, or breast cancer. Um, mm -hmm. and the reason the only reason I say that, and I am I'm getting those dates wrong, and I apologize if I am, but um she has two young adult sons now, and I know that she was diagnosed when they were very young, and mm -hmm. she just in one of her essays she was just like you know, may I see these children grow up? And she has, yeah. but at this point, um, she's, she, she announced in a piece last year that at this point there's, it's, it's not that she's in hospice or anything like that, but she's, they can't really treat it anymore. They've, she's done uh, a, a Hercule, 
Herculean and magisterial job of, of being able to stay with us for this long and create the kind of work that she has without really shining the light on herself very much. Yeah. This particular piece was elegiac, elegiac. I don't, I don't know how you say elegiac? it. Elegiac. Elegiac. Uh, it was moving to me in ways I, 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 I can't tell you. I'm, I'm going to just read a couple of little sentences. Um, Nancy, before uh, you start, is yeah. there a reason for her to be doing writing about Didion now, or is it just one of those she did like she did this profound road trip and wanted to share it with us? I think that she was after Didion's death. She was um, in, inspired to go do this. We also have to realize she lives in California. Um, um, Flanagan does, and she's looking at her own mortality as we all are. You know, but hers just is, is in a little a little closer in the rear view. Um, she says at the very end, and of course it's terrible to read uh, the kicker of what a writer's saying, but um, she said um, she's gone, da, 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 she's looking at all these things, and she realized, I realized that in some part of my mind, I thought she'd pull it off, that she'd show illness and death a thing or two. Mm. And you, you know, y- you have to, you have to see who's writing this and why. Um I'm going to read just for for the heck of it, because I think, you know, we know as writers, um, you know, Joan, Joan Didion famously said she writes so that she knows what she's thinking. I'm sure I'm, I'm, I'm butchering that quote. Um, but let me find something that Flanagan wrote. Joan Didion um, famously wrote Topless. She did not. She did not. <laughs> she did not. Um, okay. I will I just say wanted a nice to start little, rumors about Joan Didion. A nice, a, lo- a little bit of a Flanagan love um, for for Didion uh, when she was in Sacramento. She wrote, "If I lived in Sacramento, I would rename the Capitol building for her. I would turn a park into the Joan Didion Garden with wide pathways covered in pea gravel, as in the Tuileries." Mm-hmm. Um, so she goes to. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm not doing this as quickly as I should. Um, and I'm also going to ask you when I when I read a couple of uh, these quotes. Joan Didion had a fascinating. Um, didn't she have like a fascinating uh, beef with Mary McCarthy? That's one of the like kind of female giants of writing clash against ever, each other. Yeah, I I don't know. We should look that up and maybe I'll find something about it. But um, Mary McCarthy, who famously wrote the group, um, yeah, McCarthy did a couple takedowns of Joan Didion that were like vicious. And Didn't it, she do the no? The takedown was I thought was of um, of what's her name, uh, Lillian Hellman. That well, they every, had they were very. There's like a play about them called like Best Frenemies or something like that. Best friends, best frenemies. I don't know. I I've got like three quarters of half these stories, and so I'm conflating all of them. But I do think that Mary McCarthy was was pretty dismissive of. She wrote an eviscerating review of Joan Didion's novel. Um, that basically was the last time Joan Didion wrote novels. And I love slap. Really? No, that can't be because she wrote, she wrote, um, she wrote um, uh, uh, the last thing he wanted, I believe in the nineties. I don't think McCarthy was still around there then, or maybe even after the nineties. I think the last thing he wanted was, or the last thing she wanted, ugh, terrible Nancy. Um, uh, in, I think that was her last novel. I'm also going to just, I'm sorry, I'm going to get down a little bit on Google here today. I was actually looking up Joan Didion fiction. Pe- do people not 
not understand the difference between nonfiction and fiction? They do like, not. literally or they literally novel? Do. They literally do not. You they know what? don't. I'm like, the word what? fiction is in both words, and it just completely confuses yeah, people. Yeah, okay. All right, um, so I'm just is- going to read this. in 1984 in the New York Times. The opening line of this piece is, in about 50 years of reading the book review, I do not recall anything equaling Mary McCarthy's review of Joan Didion's Democracy. Okay, so that was before. If you can you just look up very quickly uh, the last thing he wanted? I think that's the name of it. I that definitely was published after that after um Democracy. There's there I mean I'm I'm sure of that. Um and maybe like Democracy it, was a was a a book on um you know journalism or American culture or something like that. No, I um, think it's fiction. But in any case, um I want to so I'm just going to back up here for a second. So I always like to read writers, what writers write. And I'm going to read you this. Um, this this is something that um, that Flanagan wrote when she was in the, the sorority, Joan Didion sorority. I was sitting on the floor of the, in quotes, television room in the Tri-Delta sorority house on Warring Street in Berkeley. I hadn't been in a sorority house in 40 years, but it all came back to me. The sleepy underwater feel of the house at midday, the muffled sounds of a meal being prepared in the kitchen, the constant effort to keep a mild depression from growing, and the endless interest in candies and snacks. Okay, guys, guys, writing doesn't get better than this. That that's it. This is for me, writing does not get better than this. It's very compact, it's very evocative, and you know everything you need to know, even if you've never in your life been to a sorority house. Okay. The other thing I'm going to read, this is what made me cry today. So here we go, everybody. What Joan Didion taught me. Oh, shit. You can do it. What Joan Didion taught me was that it didn't matter that I had such a messy, unenviable life. I could sit down all alone and write enough drafts to figure out what I thought about something and then punch it out into the culture. Action verbs. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to tell a little story. I, I didn't think about telling this at all till I was making some notes this morning. So, um, and I, it's, I guess it pertains to me. So, um, I had a weird, uh, high school experience. I kind of stopped, started playing hooky when I was about 13. Four, by the time I was 14, I'd kind of left school. I'd gone to this like fancy private school in Brooklyn Heights. And um, I went and hung out in the streets in New York. We did a lot of stuff. We had, you know, what we thought was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. We, you know, did some drugs and we were just bad. Not, not terribly bad. I never like hurt anybody or broke in anybody's house or anything. But I was hanging out with a pretty rough crew that was not from my neighborhood And within about a year and a half, two years, that rough crew had gotten like really rough. Like they were beating each other with chains and guys were 16 and going to jail and people had guns and it was bad. And I had to, I was very lucky. I I was able to kind of like be reabsorbed into my old world. And if people say like, as my daughter said, like, mom, how did you do all these things? I was like, honey, it was the seventies. There were no parents around and whatever. But I was reabsorbed and went back to my old school. I was now a year behind all the kids I'd gone to school with since first grade because I'd been out of school for two years. And, um... I uh, somehow uh, got uh, into this little class of six kids in the principal's office. Meanwhile, the principal had let me into the school when I was four years old. So I certainly knew who he was, but I was like kind of the bad girl now, but I was like kind of really keeping my head down, man. I really had to, I had to get out of the world I'd been in. Anyway, we would sit once a week in his office 
And he'd give us, we'd read a book and then we would each write a little essay and we'd talk about it. And um, one uh, uh, one time it was, the book was Slouching, Toward Bethlehem. Slouching Towards Bethlehem. So I came in the next week and he's like, well, Nancy, why don't you read your piece? And I, I stood up and I remember he was sitting on the edge of his desk and I stood up and I read my piece and I looked up and he was looking at me. It, I, I've said this before, the only time I've ever looked at anyone with that amount of radiance in my eyes was at my own baby. Mm. And he looked at me, he said, oh my God, you're a writer. Mm. As though it explained everything. Mm-hmm. Everything that had happened for the past three years. Now, of course, I had no fucking idea what he was talking about. But in fact, he was right. Yeah. And it started with Didion for me. Um, I, I, you know, Flanagan talks about like, how does she, how does she capture women especially? And, I, and of course, men appreciate her writing. Of course they do. But there's a certain, and this, this also, it's interestingly, Flanagan writes, she was 14 when she was captured. And I, I was, you know, 16. Hmm. And she, it's not so much that she gives you permission. For me, that was Mary Gateskill. That was reading Mary mm. Gateskill's bad behavior. Yeah. And I was like, wait, you're allowed to write like this? <laughs> you know? And I used to write some fiction. I, I Every once in a while, I'll kick out a little fiction, but I really, it's, I really moved to nonfiction. But something about the way Didion told a story, sort of, as an old editor I used to write for said, you know, you tell your stories out of the side of the eye. Like there's a sort mm. of elliptical quality. Like you're not, you're not hammering it. You're, you're trying to like get under something. Anyway, she has been so profoundly important to me. And, I, and I'm not one that walks around talking about writers or venerating writers, but Joan Didion just is that person. And she is that person for Flanagan, though Flanagan also has some interesting, you know, criticisms like, you know, like, I know, I know the entitlement, the riches. And I know. I mean, there there are certain things about Didion and that, that you're like, oh, she's a little blind to that thing. It's all fine. But the combination of reading Flanagan on Didion, for me, it's it's overwhelming. Oh my goodness, this is so dear. <laughs> It is so dear the way that you will cry over writing and journalism is the only thing I ever see you cry about. It's true. And it, I also cry when I get so mad about I know. when people are doing things so badly. Like, like I'm not going to cry over the Washington Post thing because I just, I just find this. I just have no, I have no respect for it. And I don't know how they can hold their heads up. But I do. That's true. Sorry. No, it's Okay. I'm going to give some thoughts on Joan Didion, if that's okay. And then Please. Um, I have a, Please. some thoughts on Caitlin Flanagan as well. I wrote about how I came to Joan Didion, which was pretty late in life. Um, I wrote about it in my blog, and I'm going to send you the the link to it so you can... Yes. I, I wrote about this when she died. She came to mean a great deal to me. Um, I think most writers have their person. My person is really Dave Wallace, but but, you know... And, and it's so interesting how Joan Didion is almost in counterpoint to Wallace. Like he was such a maximalist and she's such a miniaturist. She is a master of the short, yes. concise sentence. He is almost, I call his writing sort of like analog hyperlinks in the sense that like before <laughs> we have hyperlinked stuff, he's, he, his mind is hyperlinking stories and things like that. He's, he's, he's sort of presaging the way that people are going to talk in the 21st century. She is a master of that short 
piece. You know, the, 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 the book that really blew my mind was Slouching Toward Bethlehem. Yeah. The essay. It's the Haight-Ashbury. The Haight-Ashbury it's, it's, essay it's, it's, on the hippies. And it's tremendous. But uh, there are many pieces in there. Her deployment of detail. Um, her way of using the first person that is not very personal is very fascinating to me. She is n- She's actually a quite private person. But she will use it and bring you closer and it's exceptionally effective. But isn't it also the case, at least for me, even it's like she's almost always also there, like right behind the... Yes. She's cloaking, but she's also not. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, I have not been a big reader or big fan of her novels. And I need to read a book called A Book of Common Prayer that I've heard is wonderful. I did read Play It It As It Lays. I found it to be cold and artificial. I think it is supposed to be that way. It is about a Hollywood actress who has a drinking problem. I also just don't find that story terribly interesting. Mm. And um, I would rather get under the skin of somebody rather than be pushed out to the perimeter. It always felt like we were watching that whole thing in sort of from a zoom lens. Um, I I reread that book. Uh, So she died on December 23rd, uh, 2021. I tested COVID positive on December 23rd, 2021 and spent Christmas day alone in my apartment rereading played as it lays. But I do, I do want to get back to a book of common prayer. And then I also will highly recommend, I the last thing he wanted. And I'm going to look that up now when that was published. Um, I am a fan of her fiction, including River Run, which was her first, uh, her first novel, uh, which is, um, uh, I haven't, I haven't reread that one. I've reread most of them. Um, and of course her, her nonfiction, I, I just, I, there, there are very few, few of her books that I, I would not, I would not recommend. So carry on. Um, I think, yeah, she's kind of one of my three, like my top three. I think that is a cliche. I think to say that you're a a female writer who loves Joan Didion is a little bit like saying you're a musician that loves the Beatles. Um, (laughs) But but also, like, why would you not love the Beatles? Why would you not love Joan Didion? There's a little bit of a like of of like a jockeying amongst the second generation behind her of like, who is the Joan Didion of our age? I did a book event with Gia Tolentino, the New Yorker writer. Mm -hmm. um, And she was just, every review was calling her Joan Didion. Gia is about one of the coolest people I've ever met. And at the book event that I did with her, she was like, we can all agree Joan Didion's a better writer than me, but I'm the better hang. (laughs) And I was like, (laughs) you are so fucking cool. Um, Anyway, uh, the writer that I would place that crown on is Caitlin Flanagan. I think she is unbelievably good, funny, funny and wise and penetrating and tart. And I had been reading her for years in a sort of guilty pleasure way. And I'll explain why in a second. And 
about a year ago, I finally emailed her and said, Caitlin Flanagan, I have admired you for years and I just want you to know this. And I'm sorry that I never tweet your stories. And she <laughs> wrote pretty- back and was like, no worries. Thank you so much. <laughs> and that was it. And I was like, we're going to be friends now, but we weren't. It's fine. And here's why I used the word guilt. Because Caitlin Flanagan, in the aughts particularly, the oddies, the whatever the hell you want to call that, the first decade of the century, became a problematic, complicated figure amongst liberal media people because she did not color inside the lines. So when I was at Salon, there were a couple figures that were very much hated. And it was Caitlin Flanagan and Katie Royfe. Well, those were the two major ones. And by the way, those are two of the best writers. The best. I mean, Katie Royfe is an absolutely stunning writer. Now, one of the things that Caitlin Flanagan does, and I, I so a, a friend of mine, a writing friend, recently said to me, like a couple months ago, I've been reading Caitlin Flanagan and holy shit, she's not a conservative. And I was oh, like, that, right, that's correct. Oh, she is in fact, and says so in every single piece she ever writes, she was raised by liberals. She's from Berkeley. This is, I, people call me a conservative. I'm like, I'm they're calling me, they call me a conservative. It's, it's, it's like, no, this is again, shorthand. It's shorthand. Well, didn't you have someone say to you like, oh, wait, I thought she was a libertarian. It's like, yeah, because I write for reason. Oh, no, No, you. you, Yes. Yes. One of my friends was like, your podcast partner, Nancy, I can't pin her down is, I thought she was a libertarian, but she seems a little different. I mean, why would you think that? Because you're allied with the bozos at at fifth column. (laughs) No, it's not that it's reason. It's because I write for reason. Oh, <laughs> oh. Speaking of that, guys, uh, they they had a really cool event. I wasn't uh, I wasn't uh, in town for it. I was in Tulsa, but they did a live event at the Comedy Cellar. Blah blah blah. We'll put a link here to it. They just released. They just dropped the live episode. So I'll and put Michael on, I'll put Rappaport was there. Yeah, yeah. And then also Colin Quinn showed up at the very end. Dang, so um, yeah, they're it was big to be, time. They're big time yeah. bozos. And they. And they record right in the studio. So anyway. Yeah, um, no, yeah, you're we'll, right. We'll it's, it's the alliance with reason as well. But, but you know, that's like it's, shorthand. It's like the if people you read, are anybody who read my story, anybody who read my stuff for reason w- would not immediately go like, wow, that girl's a libertarian. If they read it, they'd be like, oh, that's interesting. She's getting fucking tear gassed and telling me what's on the ground. Like, how does that make you a libertarian? People anyway, are, I'm, not mad, I'm not mad about it. But People are so uncomfortable when they can't put you in a category. And nobody's talking about bakers, Nancy. And so I'm, they don't care that your category is bakers. Oh, but the, uh, the uh, for, so to get back to Flanagan, there's no way she's a conservative. And yes, she was not coloring inside the line. She was one of the early people that was saying, hey, guys, let's not like hate certain swaths of people because that it, it or love certain swaths of people because it comports with your idea of what what culture tribal war we have to fight today. Why don't we really look at what's going on here? This one is of, unpopular. One of the interesting things she did that really got the goad of uh, of feminists is that a saying? Got the goad? Got the go- I don't know what I'm goat. saying. Get your goat. Oh, get your goat. goat. Yeah, I naturally. Think so. We all want to get goats. So one of the things that got the goats <laughs> of feminists, whatever that means, is that she wrote about should we really be outsourcing motherhood to nannies, high paid nannies? And what does it do to their families? And what is this industry of feminism that is basically 
created a, a world where women are not mothers. You know, they're, they're outsourcing motherhood, right? Well, that just pissed feminists off. Now, by the way, Caitlin Flanagan was writing about that as someone who had done that. She lived in D.C. and was, you know, had a high-priced nanny and was starting to think like, you know, maybe what this it, isn't all that it was cracked up to be. And I, I, you are, so this is, I mean, look, everybody's gonna, everybody's gonna work it out the way they want to work it out. And I am all for that. You want to have a nanny? Great. You want to stay home with your kids? Great. You want to have no kids? Great. That's fine. But like, don't, uh, please don't disparage someone either that A, wants to stay home with their children or B, wants to outsource the work. I mean, it's it's the same. Like one one is not better than the other. And I will I will tell you something. It's going to sound so crazily retro, but it really strikes me as kind of beautiful. I met a young woman when I was in um, Houston a couple of months ago. She actually recognized me from uh, from that PragerU video that I'm gonna that I'm gonna post. She's 25 years old. God, she's gorgeous. She's got these two little kids, three and one. We went and had drinks with them. And the house is like kind of a wreck, the toys. And they're just, they're, she's super loose about things. It's sort of beautiful. She posts these beautiful Instagram videos with her and her kids. And she's home with the kids. Like her husband is, a, is an attorney and she does this. And, and she said to me, she's like, Nancy, they're only little for a little while. Like I really love, love love being with them. And for her, it works. And you can see it on her Instagram videos. It's just, it's so sweet. Now, on the other hand, I have a particular friend, like she could not be mother to a small child. It was like, absolutely not. And she was right to not do it. And all of that is fine. But one is not more, more advanced than the other. You should go with what works for you. I told you in one of the previous episodes that I you know, I have my career and my life because I stayed home to be a mother and I had to work from home, you know? So I I wanted to raise my child. I wanted to be there when she was sick, when she had a runny nose. Now, when I was working a lot, did I have to send her to preschool with a runny nose? Yes, I had to. Like, I had to do that. But that's okay. You know, she survived. Um, but yes, I do remember that. I do remember that she was disparaged for that because there's this idea that, you know, we're on this path, we're out of this path, out of you know, being enslaved to the home. And part of that is caring for our children. Well, that's fine if you want to get out of that, but don't, you're not allowed to tell other people they're not allowed to love it. I mean, it's choice is choice is choice is choice. Choice is great. Choice is great. Um, one of the things that you said about Caitlin Flanagan that I wanted to ask you about is you described her as kind. And one of the reasons that that struck me is because I've been asking a friend that's a great writer about Flanagan. And she said, you know, I really love her as a stylist, but she has a mean girl spirit. And I said, oh, interesting. I don't, I had never seen that. And I, I don't know. I think you could probably say the same thing about Joan Didion because there's a sort of emotional coldness in Didion. I think that would be probably one of the things that I would criticize in her. She's not a terribly warm she's not funny. writer and she's not funny. Flanagan is hilarious. Fra- um, Flanagan is Didion very funny. Didion is not funny and she's also really cold. And, you know, you feel that in Year of Magical Thinking, which is about the death of her husband and then later yeah. her daughter. Now, it almost is a relief uh, to to hear that kind of tragic story told without the sort of bleh of emotions, but as someone who experiences and sort of monetizes the bleh of emotions, which is yours truly, Sarah Heppola, this is somewhere that I am a little different. I mean, I tend to be a much more emotive 
emotional writer and Didion is a little bit flat for me. Um, I also wonder if I would even be friends with her. I don't know what she was like. I don't really have a sense of her person. There's actually a really interesting documentary called The Center Will Not Hold done by her uh, nephew, uh, Griffin Dunn. Dunn. Of After Hours. Yes. And I used to watch that when I couldn't go to sleep because it was very calming to me to listen. Uh, You're the second person that has told me that. Yeah, there's something lullaby-ish about it. Wow. It has long passages from Didion that she reads in her very flat voice. And there is something about it. And her little tiny, she's a tiny person. And she pushes her hands out towards the camera like she's pushing words out of her mouth. And there's something about it that's like, go to sleep. Go to okay. sleep. I meant the movie After Hours. I had oh, a no, friend I tell me that that. that that he would watch that like over and over at night just to sort of like for comfort to think. Well, so speaking of, so she, one of the things she says to the camera, she says to Griffin Dunn, and I'm quoting, I'm quoting Flanagan here. At one point, she's talking about marrying Dunn, her husband, uh, and the idea of falling in love. And she almost flinches. Yep. I don't know what falling in love means. It's not part of my world. That now, line rocked yeah. me. Um and uh, you know who who oh well I do know what falling in love means. Who knows what the quality is like for other people? We can't know. Nobody's just going to be the same. Um but that she would say that categorically is um is interesting. It's, it's interesting. Fascinating. One it's of her things is a real allergy to sentimentality. Sentimentality. Oh, for sure. Which and I love. <laughs> I am so sentimental. And so uh you mean you you love her 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 allergy to I, sentiment? You I, hate sentimentality, right? I do. My mother has told me I am the least sentimental person that you she are. Knows. I'm not very sentimental, but I'm very loving. You are. I just, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, yeah, I'm not very sentimental. You're a okay. very interesting mix of loving and unsentimental. <sighs> Welcome to the Nancy Rommelman show. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, but anyway. Uh, I really fight my own sentimentality. I mean, I have an allergy to it and I also have a draw to it. So I'm sort of back and forth with that. But, you know, I was bowled over by that because I have been chasing love all my life and it's one of my like most used vocabulary words. And so for her to say like falling in love is not in my vocabulary and, you know, a wordsmith like that, I was like, wow, I need to think well, yeah, about it, this. I need to think about this. But she's, I think, I think what she's talking about is that it is a delusion. It is a Hollywood cliche. Falling in love is the stuff of poets and movies and her relationship with John Gregory Dunn, her husband was a partnership. It was a True. real thing. True. It was and a real and complicated thing that didn't have to do with, quote, falling in love. It had to do with deciding that she wanted to be beside this man for the rest of her life. They have a very interesting, complicated, beautiful love story. There, Whether and she the, calls the work, it that or not. The enviable uh, work schedule, I have to say, I was pretty envious of it. And so did, uh, so. and Caitlin Flanagan uh, spelled it out. It's like, you know, you get up in the morning, you work, you break for lunch, you go back to work, and then it's cocktails and dinner time. I'm like, that would, I've never been, I've never been uh, in a, like living in a home with a writer that would have that schedule, but it, it kind of, um, it kind of appeals to me. But I will counter that. Um, I, I can say three times in my life, I can remember very, very, very specifically what it felt like physically to fall in love. The physical component oh, of too. it is just bananas. I mean, it's... It's, it's the greatest full, drug. It's, it's the greatest it's, drug. It's a full body experience, man. <laughs> so um, with all that, what is that? There's some... some uh, in, 
what's some endorphin that's released? I Oxytocin. Like, oxytocin. Yeah. It's man, it's good. It's good stuff, man. I'm gonna get um, hooked on that again. Let's go. Could you go get some and send some to me? Because I think it's legal in Texas, but not legal oh, here. Yeah. You can mail it. All right, we're bumping up against our time. What are we what do we need to and okay, a couple things. Number one, guys. First of all, thanks for listening. We love that you're here with us. Um, please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you want to pay for a subscription, that's even better. Please, please, please tell your friends because that's going to get our word out. And I, I think you told me, Sarah Heppler, there's like, I mean, I know obviously you can rate and, and comment on things on Apple. I had never looked if we had that, but you said we did get a nice comment or a nice rating. So if you want to go do that, please, um, please be our guest. us at Apple Podcasts and Spotify yeah. because that is one of the ways that uh, people can find us easier is the more rates and whatever. I mean, look, I'm not going to care if you do nothing. I, as a podcast listener, normally never do anything. I don't but think I'm going to ask you to do it. And I'm also yeah. going to say that the last time I checked our Apple podcast, we had five stars. But the one review we had was this guy saying, interesting conversation, please stop eating. And I was Whoa. like... Were we eating? Yeah, we ate those cookies and the pie. Oh, well. Yeah, well, no, it was gross to him. It was and I homemade Homemade pie and homemade cookies, guys. Well, listen, and, I, I, oh, I would suggest that somebody hop in there and say, interesting conversation, please only eat from now on. So that there can be some counterbalance here. Speaking of eating, so in our last podcast, we said for the next, the number 10 person who's paid for a subscription was going to get um, some uh, pound cake and cookies made by me and sent to you. Three more. Still looking for three more. So if that's what you're thinking Ooh, about today, season, I, would do, man. I okay. would do it. I know. What's yeah, up what's here? What's going on here? We um, need three more. Okay. Uh, I don't have a date yet for, for when we're going to do the first true crime book, which is going to be The Snakehead, but Pick It Up by Patrick Radden Keefe if you're interested. And I'm thinking what we'll probably do is we'll probably do a Zoom and just get for the people that have um, read it, we'll get in. We'll, we'll just talk about it as opposed to just like me doing, you know, writing and getting comments online. But we'll see. Um, the reason I haven't named a date is because I'm trying to get myself to San Francisco for the recall of the DA there, Chesa Boudin, who is the son of some weather underground people who was raised by other weather underground people when his parents went to prison for murder. Yeah, there's that. So that's right at the beginning of June, but so I'm thinking right when I get back. So as soon as I know whether I'm going or not, I will announce the date. I'm thinking something like June 9th or 10th. Uh, yeah. Well, so that's I don't know anything about that. So I'm very fascinated to learn okay, about we'll, Chesa Boudin from you. That is all going to be learn. new for me. Yep. I'll, I'll, if I'll, I'll be you like, uh, instead of on the scene at Depp Hurt, I'll yep. be uh, on the scene at the, um, at the uh, recall thing. I hope there are alpacas. Did I mention there were alpacas at the Johnny yep. Depp? <laughs> I guess there's a picture of them on the last episode. So what else, uh, what else do you have to announce here, Seppel, Sarah Heppel? Well, I have, I have to announce that my name is pronounced Heppela, <laughs> Nancy Rommelman. <laughs> And so one day, maybe you'll respect me and get it correct. I know. I also have to announce that you are topless. I'm, I'm, I'm not really topless. Okay, you're not topless. I'm That's not, not topless. my announcement. <laughs> I love you all, but mostly you, listener. Mostly you, listener. Exactly. Now she's going to cry. It's her turn to cry. Um, okay. <laughs> all right, guys. Thanks for listening. Um, we will see you here in a couple days. Bye. I'm going to go watch Johnny Depp. Ciao. Bye. Bye.